Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Norman, joined this week by Callum Petch. Hello! And Owen Hughes. Hello! As we take a look at the last week or so in film, including reviews of new releases, Bridge of Spies, Black Mass, Carol and The Good Dinosaur. We'll start off, though, with the quiz. Last week I lost, Owen took revenge on me and made me watch Columbo. Uh, <laughs> Columbo Identity Crisis was the one that I uh, yep. ended up with, which which did briefly have in it Leslie Nielsen, which was a turn up for the books. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. Uh, he didn't last long. He was a, a an FBI agent who got killed. It was it, it was Identity Crisis involved FBI agents and double crossing and double agents. Um, it is as Owen said when he reviewed a Columbo film. It's Columbo. It's everything you'd expect from Columbo. Although I can't understand why he's getting involved in what is clearly an FBI investigation. <laughs> it is well beyond the his jurisdiction. Yeah, yeah, it's well beyond his jurisdiction. I don't know why he's sticking his oar in and why he's being allowed to. Yeah. Were any? Did you have any weird quotes like the one I got about the guy who said, I don't have a willy? No. No. No, I didn't have any. Nothing like that? No nothing. interesting or funny bits? If I did, I can't. I, I wasn't interested. At all. I watched it because I was at work and had nothing better to do with my day. But, it, yeah, it, it, it to call it passing the time was, was an insult. It, yeah, it's Columbo. It's just, yeah. If you've seen yeah. anything like Columbo, Diagnosis, Murder, Murder, She Wrote, you've seen this. So how many Columbo sort of specials do you reckon you've seen? Uh, not many. Not many? You've seen one, you've seen them all. <laughs> well, we have now, because that's the end of it. You hope. Uh, it is. That's, I'm pulling like my foot down. No more Columbo. Columbo is done. Wow. We shall see. This um, sounds on- very ominous. Yeah. Mm. On to the quiz itself, where it is Owen versus the guest. So in this case, Owen versus Callum. If Owen wins, he gets a point. If I win, I get a point. First of three. Makes the other person watch something terrible maybe something good but it doesn't tend to happen no i've tried and just you know people just throw it back in my face so well you tried by giving me a film that you thought was good and then i watched it and i thought it was a bit boring so you know there's that there's there's the intent there i've done it i've done it twice now i've tried to do good films twice but next goal wins and the man from earth yeah oh true that is two i'll give you that and then then you also started off this columbo thing and did kill keith um (laughs) You, you, it's and, United, and United Passions. And United Passions, yeah. yeah that one. 
Anyway, so with uh, the good dinosaur being out this week and being reviewed on this podcast, the quiz will take a, a Pixar-related theme. This is going to be heavily weighted in Callum's favour, I can well, tell already. I don't, I don't know. Uh, so first off then, one of the Pixar films released to date has 100%, this is all according to the Wikipedia page for Pixar, by the way, uh, has a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Which film is it? I want to say Toy Story 2. Mm, I'm going to say Toy Story 3. You are both wrong. It is Toy Story. <laughs> mm. Yeah, no, if I remember, it's like Armand White's one review or something that took Toy Story 3 down from 100, if I remember. That was yeah. a huge annoyance outcry by it at the time. Uh, four Pixar films have had a budget of 200 million US dollars. One was Toy Story 3. One was The Good Dinosaur. Name one of the other two. Hmm. One of them, I believe, is Brave. No, it's incorrect. Ooh. So I just need to name one of the other two. Yes. Uh, God, it's going to be someone who's one of the films that's got a massive star cast, maybe. Um, uh, the Incredibles. No, it was Cars 2 and Monsters University. Uh, oh, Brave... yeah, more recent stuff, yeah. Brave They're getting had... very expensive now. Brave had a budget of $185 million and The Incredibles are 92 yeah, that's when like like Disney and Pixar, especially, are just throwing money around recently when it comes to their films. I don't think they've made a film that's cost less than 150 million in like seven years or something. It's ridiculous. Uh, I remember when Tangled cost something like 260 million to make. <laughs> the highest-grossing worldwide Pixar film is Toy Story 3, with um, just a hell of a lot of money. But second, what is next on the list? Finding Nemo. You are you are correct with a hundred ninety five point six million dollary dues. <laughs> wow! So I can't uh, I can't get a point in this one then. That's gone. No, no, no. <laughs> no. Uh, two Pixar films have been nominated for Academy Award for the Best Picture Award. Sorry, one was Toy Story three. The other oh. was yeah. Oh, yes, I knew that one. Yes. Uh, Should have gone faster then, shouldn't yeah. <laughs> Callum has won the quiz now. There is no way back for Owen. But there is one, <laughs> fi- there is f- one final question. And as I've prepared it, you shall try and answer it. Uh, as far as Wikipedia is concerned, there are seven Pixar films in production. Two are to be announced and have no names or any kind of information attached to them. Four of them are sequels. What is, the, what is the name of the one that is not a sequel? Uh, Dave, Pixar's David Ebb movie. No, that's not on this list. It's called Coco. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's the name for David Ebb movie. I think. I'm going to have a search now while you, do, while you guys do this. <laughs> uh, yes, you are correct. Um, oh, th- thank, thank you for the validation. <laughs> well, I had yeah. to look into it a bit. Oh, I've only looked at the name. So, yeah, the other films in production are Finding Dory, which is obviously out very soon, Cars 3, Toy Story 4, and The Incredibles 2. What was your tiebreaker question? I didn't have one. I knew I wouldn't need one. Yeah, that probably was the tiebreaker. <laughs> no, I would have found one based on the, the box office numbers or something. It would have been fine. So you, you come at me about not being prepared with a, a tiebreaker, and there you are, winging it on the quiz. Well... It worked out fine, didn't it? 
for Callum. <laughs> anyway. Yes, anyway, on to the news and failed critics-related news, Owen. Yeah, we um, have our first spin-off podcast that we've been trying to th- sort of think about what we're going to do for it for about a year, I think, when you and I first first talked about it. And in the end, it kind of landed on our lap because Paul Field, who's been on the podcast uh, a few times, and James Mullinger, who is an stand-up actual, comedian. actual professional comedian and actor. Yeah, yeah. Actual he professional human being. Has won awards, been nominated for awards, has makes his money touring as a stand-up comedian. Yeah, him. He is now doing a podcast called Underground Nights with Paul. Um, so they're going to look at kind of cult movies, uh, sort of independent stuff that we may have missed on this main podcast when we do Hunger Games specials, as they seem to like to, to take the piss out of. But, you know, the, the recent episode, the first episode, is really good. I was really surprised that, um, that they actually put together something that was so good for the first go. You know, it, it it was very impressive. So, well, I can kudos see, to them. I can see from Paul's hosting style, he's obviously been listening to me quite a lot. He's learned a lot, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got all the lessons down about how not to do it. No, he didn't. He, yeah, um, <laughs> but he, um, he and Mullinger both interviewed the, uh, a director, Lowell Dean, who is a Canadian film director and made Wolf Cop quite recently. Um, and there's a bit of exclusive info about wolf cop 2 on there and to be honest lol dean's just seems like a really nice guy as well so um it's worth a listen it's on our website just go to failedcritics.com and there it'll be on the front page and how often are they intending on releasing these probably every four to six weeks excellent. so it won't be a weekly one it'll just be running alongside our normal podcast excellent lovely uh on to film news superhero news we've had a couple of trailers and teasers out in the last week uh, first up was Civil War the next in the Marvel film um, which is which is Captain America 3 the trailer teases the fact that it's a big fight between Iron Man and Captain America who sort of form their own little factions and, and square off against each other over a kind of civil right about whether the heroes the superheroes in Marvel world should be registered with the government or whether they should act as vigilantes and doing what they believe is just, rather than what the government is telling them is just. So it's got quite an interesting concept behind it. The trailer does make it look a bit punchy. But, you know, it's the job of the trailer to try and get audiences in, right? And presumably their opinion is people go to see Marvel films for the big fights and action sequences. I think as well they may have taken a lead from... Disney's other kind of new big franchise, Star Wars, where they haven't revealed a lot in the trailer. And Star Wars has has revealed very little of the plot in the trailer and all the better for it. Um, Well, I kind of feel like the Star Wars film is just going to be like watching a huge, long trailer. Well, you don't like Star Wars, so... That's true, but just from from the impression that I get from the trailer, from the fact that I think you've got J.J. Abrams in charge of it, who's... I'm not a big fan of his Star Trek films, to be honest. And I just think the Star Wars film, particularly because we know there's going to be all these spin-offs, we know they're going to try and create their own Star Wars 
extended universe or whatever they want to call that. Plus, the, the you know, dozens of sequels. And it's just, I think the, this film is just going to be a big, long two and a half hour trailer. But anyway, the point is... But the point is, the Civil War trailer. They've not, they've not given away much of the plot in there. They've not shown anything of Spider-Man, who we know is going to turn up in this. Ant-Man is only in it if you freeze it and zoom in really closely from some screenshots I've seen. Um, mm. uh, Black Panther is glimpsed in, in the trailer, but not a lot. So then, and they've not, like you said, there's not really any of the plot in the trailer, whereas some films now, you can, you know what's going to happen in the whole film by watching the trailer. Well, quite, yeah. I, I mean, I saw In the Heart of the Sea, the trailer for that in the cinema today, and I just thought, I don't need to see the film. It's everything. That is yeah. the whole plot from start to finish. So at least I suppose it doesn't do that quite as badly as some other trailers do. I mean, have you seen the trailer, Callum? Have you got an opinion on it? Are you looking forward to the film, or has it made you just go, no. meh? No, no, I don't, I don't watch trailers. At least I try not to any in that way, mainly because they'll end up being run over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again before films, like yeah. before films for the next three months anyway. So what's the point? I try and avoid trailers anyway because, again, most of the time they do just spoil shit. Yeah. So, and as somebody as a film critic who likes to try and go into these things knowing as little as possible usually, um, that ends badly. Oh, I, I watch trailers and I go into things knowing as little as possible, but that's just... <laughs> just don't retain the information. That's just me. <laughs> Tend to know as little as possible about a lot of things. But <laughs> so, so do you? How do you avoid them though when you go to the cinema? Because surely, do you well, just the way I do it, the way I do it is, um, well, it is that I essentially time my pre-film P for when the trailers start. Like right. I'll get, I'll get in early. I'll get in early during my first I get my seat. Then I'll leave my seat with my bag, like with my bag in place. Wander off to the toilet, go to the toilet, then just kind of hang around outside the cinema screen until the trailers are basically finished, then walk in and sit down. Initially, it's a preventive measure to stop me from being exposed to horror movie trailers, but, you know, kind of like all quiet, kind of thing, but then it ended up being used. I mean, it backfired, it's only backfired once so far, actually, which was last year when I went to see Gone Girl for a second time. And I got I ended up getting sat next to these two old people. The beautiful thing where I left my bag, yeah, went to talk about that, hung around. Where they then came out, like, at the screen right then. I mean, I was like, is that your bag on the seat there? And I was, like, I thought, oh, they probably thought that, like, somebody was going to steal it or something. They decided to go report it. Was that fine? And so they told me, well, you know, you can't leave stuff like that because it might, because people might think it's a bomb. (laughs) Like, they were about to go shut the place down because they genuinely thought my bag was a bomb threat, which is... It's, it, it, like, like I feel like I should be ashamed, but I, say, so I can't stop laughing at it because it's so fucking ridiculous. But it wasn't a bomb, though, was it? No, of course it's not a okay. bomb. Okay. Just, you know, just got to clarify. Anyway, <laughs> the other teaser we had this uh, week was the Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. And I tweeted earlier, it just kind of looked like the end of a Scooby-Doo episode to me. It was a bit weird, wasn't it? Oh, it was it, it it was weird, and it didn't fill me with any joy or excitement for the film. It's just like, oh. Well, it, right. yeah, um, basically, for anyone who hasn't seen it, and apologies, Callum, um, Superman walks up to Batman, who's tied to, well, is tied to, is chained to the ceiling or something, basically walks up and rips his mask off and sees who's behind the mask. That's it. That is the teaser but that we've got. There, there, is, there is slightly more you can read into it from that, but I don't want to spoil it for people like Callum who don't want to... Oh, I just don't care. Oh, right. All right, fine, then. <laughs> fine. I don't give a shit about DC. Spoil the, the, tr- the teaser so, away, then. So, like, Batman's in this kind of pit 
anything underground. And Superman comes down, he walks along this passage in this pit. But either side of Superman are men with guns. So basically, it's trying uh, to say that Superman in this battle is the government's puppet, I think. That well, he's either just... influenced or blackmailed to, or, you know, we don't, we don't really fully know what Lex Luthor's part in this film is going to be yet. So, no. you know. But it, it, yeah, it doesn't... There's, there's something not... It's not what Superman would do, is it? He's not a gun person. Well, also, hasn't yeah. he got x-ray vision? So why does he need to take his mask off? I don't know. I didn't know yeah. but but yeah, the whole mask taking off thing was just a bit Scooby Doo, wasn't it? Who is the bad? Who is the ghost? Oh, it's uh, Bruce Wayne. And the way it comes off as well. Yeah, it's just like a big floppy rubber, yeah, Scooby Doo type mask, and revealing the 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 carnival owner underneath. You know. Yeah. But but the other thing is it it shows that he can move his head whilst he's wearing the mask because he looks around and stuff. Whereas people were saying, how are they going to do that now after, you know, after he's um, gone back to the whole sort of sort of mask with the, the neck thing, like in the old Tim Burton films, you know, mm-hmm. when he couldn't move his head. And then they got around that in the Nolan films by making it just like a helmet type thing. It speaks a lot about this film when the thing we're talking about the most is if he can move his head <laughs> in his helmet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. We're not talking about, oh, where's Spider-Man or where's Ant-Man or, oh, I wonder who's side who's Where's Wonder Woman? Yeah, it's, it's, hmm, why, can he move his head? I suppose he can move his head. Yes, he can move his head. He's not got a, (laughs) he's not got a helmet on that restricts the head movement, which is probably quite a disadvantage for a vigilante. Yeah, yeah. Time now for what we've been watching, and we're going to have a look at some of the films we've seen in the last week. Callum, why don't you start us off in this part? Uh, Yeah, I am going to talk about the fact that I finally started Star Trek this past week. Well, not exactly this past week, but some some point in the last few days kind of thing. Like, after years and years of being surrounded by internet friends who all seem to be desperately into Star Trek, I've decided to finally just bite the bullet with what very little free time I actually have and discover what the fuss is about. And so I started with the first Star Trek movie. So immediately I've started doing things wrong, apparently. So wait, this is your intro to the whole world of Star Trek, not just the movies? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. it. Uh, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I had a friend who was giving me advice, and at the time he said just start off the movies until... But then immediately they shouted me if it was wrong, and then apparently I have to watch some episodes before I do Wrath of Khan, so I've now got, oh, a, list yeah. of yeah. 10, now I've got a list of 10 episodes from the original series that are apparently actually worth watching, because apparently most of it's garbage. The Trouble um, with Tribbles. Is that on your list? I'm pretty sure that's on the list, yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to do that. But no, I start off with the first movie. And not the shortened down director's cut either. The two hours and 12 minutes theatrical version, which uh, is long. It's, so yeah, it's, extra it's, footage. It's a very, of, very long movie. Extra footage of the outside of the Enterprise for all the Star Trek no, it's like, no, it's like, Wow. That's not the one bit I like. That's the one bit I understand. Like, so I understand at the time. You know, like, it's been it's been years since Star Trek was seen on TV. It's a big cinematic reintroduction. Why not just you know indulge the fans for several minutes and let that amazing? I think it's Jerry Goldsmith score do you know all the hard work there. Like, the problem is just the fact that the rest of the movie is 
like well, it's, it's paced like one of my visits to the toilet. Like there's this <laughs> excitement, there's an excited spurt of activity at the beginning, then a long, long period where absolutely nothing happens and your attention and enthusiasm wanes. And then by the time all the action happens at the end, you're basically just you basically just don't give a shit anymore and want to get off the pot. Um, what kind of bowel movements are you having? <laughs> old man bowel, bowel <laughs> movements, Steve. That's what I have. Um, like it's, it, it's a shame, really, but because. Like, however, there is, like, there's enough in there, though, for me to understand why people love Star Trek and, you know, to see where it's going to become in the future. Like, the production design, even if it spends way too long, much of the movie just, you know, staring at the production designs that are doing anything, is gorgeous. Um, like, like, I love, like, the, the designs of the ships and the way that it envisions the future and all that, and the outfits and that there. Like, that's all lovely. Um, the final half hour of the film is great. See, like, when actual plots and stuff happens when it has to you know when it starts um going about ethics and um ai life and all that kind of stuff like that's fair and it's overall like optimistic like futurist tone near the end and that is also something i can really dig and the performances are pretty good as well like essentially like i can see where i know in the future star trek will probably like fully hook me but obviously the, the issue is the fact that this is clearly a one hour tv pilot stretched out to two hours and 12 minutes for literally no good reason and it's long, so very, very long. Mm. I, I look forward to coming back on this podcast about like seven weeks' time and telling you that I've made absolutely no forward momentum because I'm too busy to watch any Star Trek. Wrath of Khan is such a good film, though, even away from being a Star Trek film. So I'm positive you'll enjoy that one a lot yeah, more. Yeah, but no, no. Again, again, I'm wanting to get into Star Trek here. I'm excited to do so. I just need the time to be able to fully sit down and get going. Yeah. It, just probably stuck into it it's a lot of time to invest i know i know yeah. i don't know why i'm doing this on my third year <laughs> university okay owen what have you seen well so in that news item at the beginning and we mentioned underground lights and james mullinger in particular he's had a film made about his life or a part of his life when he was a journalist and then his transition from doing that whilst at the same time <laughs> doing really crappy stand-up gigs with one person in the audience in pubs all around the country to where he kind of got to the point where he could give up doing the, the, the day job and become a comedian. Or possibly not. I mean, it's, it depends how it ends because it was a test screening that I went to. It's called The Comedian's Guide to Survival, directed by a guy called Mark Murphy, who uh, unfortunately I hadn't seen any of his films before. But it seems like this is a, a, a something different for him because this is a, a, a just a proper full-on comedy. It is co-written by James Mullinger as well, and he makes a sort of cameo appearance in there as a one of the, 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 the characters who gives James Mullinger some advice, which is a bit weird. James Mullinger in the film is played by James Buckley, who is Jay from The Inbetweeners. People might know him as as that mainly, I think. And he was also in I don't know, I know I know him as a random camera guy from the pyramid. I was about to say from the pyramid. <laughs> he was also young Del Boy in that rock and chips thing. That's true, he was, yeah. Um but the film's also got loads of famous comedians in there. You've got Kevin Eldon who's in there, Tim McKinnery is in there, You've got uh, Mark Heap, Gilbert Gottfried, uh, Paul Kay, Omar Jalili, Jimmy Carr. There's a it's it's a huge list of, of comedians that just have either minor supporting roles or kind of play part points in his life as other characters um so yeah so, so it was a it was um 
it was a test screening, as I said, which means that it's still not the complete article. There's there's things they mentioned they're going to change. The same levels might need adjusting here and there. But they basically just wanted our feedback. So I'm not really going to review it in full. I don't think it would be fair. But what I will say is, hopefully a lot of what I saw is left in because it was really funny. And I'm not just saying that because it's James Mullinger and I kind of went in, you know, in the back of your mind, you go, oh, what do I say if it's crap? What do I, do I just pretend like I didn't see it if it's actually no good? But it was genuinely very funny. A lot of the humour in it is perhaps a bit more clever than you also might expect from something like this, a sort of independent British comedy. But it was it was great. I really enjoyed it. And Paul and Carol, who I went to see it with as well, we all kind of had the same opinion. The crowd seemed to get on with it as well. It's actually due out for release in 2016, but I'm not sure if they've got a specific date put out for it yet. But either way, yeah, I'm, I hope that when it comes out, it's as good as the test screening was because uh, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it. Excellent. Good to hear. And obviously, you can listen to, as we mentioned earlier, James on the Failed Critics Podcast Network now. Synergy! (laughs) Uh, I saw a film called Hidden this week, starring uh, Alexander Skarsgård and Andrea Riseborough, who are kind of people you've probably seen in things and you don't really realise until you see them as something goes, oh, they were in such and such. It is um, a film, kind of one of these post-apocalyptic, end-of-the-world kind of films about a family, the dad, Ray, played by Alexander Skarsgård, Claire, the mother, played by Andrew Riseborough, and their daughter, Zoe, who have managed to hide away in a fallout shelter um, to hide from, from what it is outside. I think the film starts well and creates a kind of you know, dark, dreary atmosphere with, with a sense of foreboding as to what's outside um, and to their situation. They've obviously got no contact with the outside world. They've not don't know of anyone from outside. They're hidden. Um, it's just the three of them. Um, you get the sense that eventually their resources will run out, although they're quite well stocked for now. It's a film like many in the horror genre or this kind of genre where things are okay, things are, things are good and enjoyable, uh, or not so much enjoyable because of the tone of the film, but you know, it's a good film until you find out who or what the bad guy is. And then it kind of dives and... and it loses a suspense and it doesn't maintain it. And you kind of think, Oh, was that really it? Was that all it was? Was that it kind of, yeah. Mm. Um, I think I was listening to one of the diamond and human pitch podcasts the other week, which was, um, horror. And I think it was James on there who was saying that he likes the idea of these type of films more than he does the actual execution of these films. He set themselves. I think that's the way I'm starting to get with films like this. Um, I mean, the performances are good from from the from the three, the, the mum, dad, and the daughter. They're, they're they're very good. They help, especially in the early film, pick up on the tone and the the feeling of of their their predicament. But I just think that the second second half, or perhaps the last third of the film, can't save it. it. Just loses something for me once I know the what's actually going on. Uh, and speaking of kind of post-apocalyptic things that to, uh, let you down, the mid-season finale of The Walking Dead happened, and uh, after such a good start to the season, it's just dived off a cliff 
I with didn't think of, it started well. I thought the first three episodes were really good. Uh, and then it kind of, yeah, tied a couple of bricks around its legs and jumped into a river. <laughs> I mean, the, the the opening scene of the last episode looked to me like a, a special effect out of Thunderbirds or, or something like that. Uh, there was one episode that was really good in this season, which was the... Um... The British fella, the black British guy. Morgan. Who... That's the yes, Morgan. Len- Lenny James. Yeah, yeah. yeah. His, uh, like, the episode that was centred solely around him and his past was fantastic. Yeah. That was perhaps one of the best episodes of The Walking Dead that there has been. But then it just gets surrounded with a lot of dross, unfortunately. Although I did like the, the episode with Daryl as well, when he was, uh, when he was in the woods. He's that more, was good. He's more or less all that's keeping me interested. Yeah, because at the minute it's stagnating somewhere. And I and I, which... and I, and I know a character that's coming up from yeah, what they've yeah. been in the whatever. So, you know, yeah. I think have you tried Z Nation yet, Owen? I still haven't tried Z. This is the one that's made by the Asylum, right? Yes. Please, please try it. If if anything, if you've got time over the weekend, please watch a couple of the episodes. And let okay. me know what you think next week. Is it on? Uh, it's on Amazon, isn't it? Uh, it might well be. It's on. I mean, if you've got Sky, it's on Sci-Fi, so it's probably on on demand or something there. Okay. But Z Nation. I know how much you like zombies. I yeah. know how much. <laughs> I think you'll love this. It's, okay. It's ridiculous. Time for us now to review a bumper amount of new releases this week. Um, we're going to start off with Pixar's latest outing, The Good Dinosaur, seen by Callum. Yes, seen by me. Uh, also, every time I see it, I feel like I need to make the title as The Good Dinosaur, because there's like this weird underline underneath the theme, <laughs> the styling for logo, makes you feel like there are no good dinosaurs, but this one dinosaur. <laughs> dinosaur. Anyways. Well, have uh, you we... seen Jurassic World? Then they're all arseholes. Not all of them. Trying to eat you all the time. Blue, and... Blue was so loyal as well. <laughs> Anyways. Um, right, so Good Dinosaur, which is the 16th Pixar um, feature, I believe. Um, released about uh, three days after Toy Story's 20th anniversary as well. Just Sorry, I just felt like dropping that interesting fact on you all, which you actually find well. interesting. Um, you don't have to, don't worry. Um, directed by Peter Sohn, who took over from Bob Gunderson after he was... I mean, Bob Peterson, who was removed from the project uh, because The Good Dinosaur has been a very troubled production, um, as, you, as you might have heard over time. When, uh, when um, you, sorry, when you sorry. say removed from... The, the project. I just envisage him like being dragged kicking and screaming from the studios. Allegedly, it was actually quite amicable and he's fine with it. But, uh, uh, but yeah, whenever you do it, the words removed, I do you just imagine like like they're busy on the boards. It's just like security guards just coming on going like, no, no, I'm <laughs> going to continue making this movie. Um, anyways, um, and also as I mentioned before, before I actually saw this movie, um, I heard nothing about it. Like I heard and knew mm-hmm. nothing about it, which was as on last week's podcast here was yeah. really worrying for me because it wasn't by choice like with inside out when i basically knew nothing um going into it about that like in this case i just genuinely knew nothing which worried me so anyways the film takes place in an ultimate universe where the meteorite that destroyed the dinosaurs um like wiped them out um completely extinct 
never actually hit Earth. Like, it missed it by miles. And so evolution has continued, the world has continued to evolve, but dinosaurs still exist. So you've got dinosaurs and humans living, you know, side by living, sort of living side by side. Um, it has been that the humans are the kind of, you know, like rabid, barely, you know, like barely intelligent mammals more than actual recognizable humans. And the dinosaurs have grown, have matured and have evolved to such an extent that they can, um, you know, like grow, um, grow, build houses and grow far and grow plants on farms and speak perfect English, that kind of thing. Um, so when we join the film, the film follows Arlo, played by Raymond Ochoa, who is the youngest of three children in his, in his um, Apatosaurus family, who just wants to earn the approval of his father, of his loving father, Henry, played by Jeffrey Wright. But he's not so good because unlike his elder sister and brother, he's very clumsy and he's constantly scared and he's basically not fit to continue to survive in the world. But although he's trying, although he's trying his hardest, unfortunately, circumstances conspire to remove the father from his life, and to further rub salt into the wound. One day, he is accidentally swept down downstream by a violent river and removed and separated from his family, like lost in the wilderness. And so now he has to travel back home to get back to his family, accompanied on the journey by a young human boy called Spot, well, who's given the name Spot, who. Uh, Arlo uh, first encounters in the beginning of the movie as somebody who's trying to steal his family's food, but he doesn't. But despite being a critter who has been ordered to kill, he doesn't kill. Like he, he can't bring himself to do it. And the two form a sort of bond essentially there as they travel across country. And that's basically it. Like compared to films like you know like Inside Out or um, Wally or even Up. This like this is incredibly simple. Like the movie is basically just what I described there. It's two people, one a dinosaur, one a human boy, just wandering back home. And the, that's the reason why the film works because it does work. Like spoiling my eventual reveal of thoughts about there. But this is actually a really great movie that I really enjoyed. Is because it simultaneously picks our simplest and also their most weird and audacious movie to date. Specifically, like, the film doesn't start off like it's going to be particularly good. Like, its first half hour is incredibly rocky because it basically looks like it's going to be set up to be your standard, you know, like, a Pixar film by numbers. You know, father issues, uh, fam- like, you know, so we've got families, comedy, you know, like, um, large, broad helpings of comedy with bits of drama, with one moment of drama sprinkled about in here. But then the further on it gets, and after it gets out of that first half hour and it does just turn into Spot and Arlo wandering the earth like to get back home the good dinosaur kind of changes essentially maybe because in contrast to every other pixar film so far the good dinosaur is actually just a straight drama like like it does have one or two moments of comedy but the comedy is very rare most of the film is being played as a straightforward drama like um it, like if you ever seen a pixar film beforehand you'll know that those films are first and foremost comedies like mm-hmm. like they're, they're films that make you laugh and then occasionally have moments of hard-hitting drama like even wally mm-hmm. which is probably the closest on that on flipping the scale there is still primarily a comedy with a lot of drama in there. but for the first time it's actually a straightforward drama and so essentially like because the film doesn't try and force itself most of the time anyway like force itself to have moments of you know like levity and that there it's able to breathe more it's able to try a lot more things again because it's only these two characters one of which can't even speak english like spot because human because humans aren't 
that evolved yet to be able to speak English up there. He's basically like he can communicate in grunts and growls and barks and acts a lot like a dog. You know, like walking around on all fours, be able to sniff things out, scratching himself behind the ear. And so because there's not much room for, for dialogue, um, especially if you've seen all the character posters and that that have been flying around, um, but each of those characters are actually in the movie for about five minutes tops. And we're going to come back to them in a minute here. For about like 75% of the films of time, it's just Arlo and Spot or just Arlo on his own. And because of that, the dialogue doesn't end up taking precedence. In the end, most of the story is communicated through animation and facial expressions. And the animation, by the way, is gorgeous. Like, it's a technical marvel. I, I initially worried, like, from the one teaser trailer I'd seen, that the juxtaposition of photorealistic environments, where, you know, where you can see every you know, like speck of dust, every raindrop, every leaf, and a, a beautiful work with lighting and mountains and all this wonderful stuff there. With purposely broadly cartoony, um, you know, designs from dinosaurs and animals wouldn't work. Like, it, like the juxtaposition would be too much and be dragged out. But instead, it actually really does work. One because again, it's um, first off from a standard level because again, the environments look incredible. They really, really, really do. It's a technical marvel. And the characters, like again, the animators work so hard to work <coughs> on facial expressions, on eye, you know, like on eyes on on how certain smiles and how they move the weights and how you can tell like for example there's problem that um the pterodactyls are really not to be trusted purely just for seeing that their eyes are slightly bloodshot like like not for like obviously wild and crazy things but just like subtle details mm-hmm. um but also it works because it really voice like helps show you that the dinosaurs despite still existing in this world like having not been wiped out that um, they still don't belong in this world. Because again, the evolution has gone on as normal. It's just that we now have dinosaurs here. But they still don't feel like out of place because the film's antagonist like, um, is nature. Like, like essentially, it's a warning movie of crossing that, of Arlo trying to cross the world as the world tries to tear apart, you know, rainstorm, like with giant dust storms and rainstorms and floods and how various people have been affected by the environment. But it's able to just prove that the dinosaurs, even though they still exist, they don't belong in this world. But they are, they, they, they're supposed to feel out of place because they're not supposed to be here, which is actually really, which is actually one of the little really clever thing. Characterization is not in the slightest bit deep at all. Um, mm. I should note, like these are like Arlo's entire again. It's basically of you know scared kid who wants to impress his father and his his learning to overcome his fear. But the film also is still looking about fear. It's looking about, um, again, the evolutionary issues, uh, about guilt. Because um, Arlo blamed, because it's, it's not explicitly stated, but Arlo definitely blames himself for the death of his father. You got that there. And also, the film essentially turns into a Western. Like, like by the time that, te- like, like it's always there you know, in the sense of, you know, like drifters of two men just wandering the, um, through the environment, like uh, through a harsh, unforgiving environment, seeing how times change and how it's affected certain people. By the time that Tyrannos, that cattle rustling, tyrann- that, um, cow- that um, cattle driving Tyrannosaurus Rexes have turned up and they're trying to chase off a bunch of cattle rustling velociraptors, like w- with Sam Elliott as like the head of the T-Rexes and that there. You know, this guy who's like a tough as nails guy who has scar, who has big scars, and he's faced crocodiles that he's drowned in his own blood, kind of thing. Like that's the point where the Western aspects just kind of burst forward, and it reveals that 
again, the film's willing to try and do something different. It's willing to try and be more adult. It's willing to put more faith in the audience that it's going to follow along, even whilst it does Western moments, even when it has um, a drug trip. Like, there's an actual full-on drug trip at one moment in this movie for about 30 seconds there. It's, you know, you know like, the, um, like the Disney has a trip from Dumbo. It's sort of like that. Um, and, it, again, in fact, that it doesn't really have an antagonist. I mean, technically it does in the sense of having pterodactyls who are basically like as if like a cult worshipping style pterodactyls who worship the storms that drive the weak out and you know basically come so they can feast on the remains and they fight over things and they fight over the scraps and say things like the storm provides. Like it's willing to put more faith in the audience and especially as well in the way that because there's very there's comparatively little dialogue a lot of the film's biggest scenes are basically just told through the animation and the music and expects you to get it like um about the film kind of peaks about the 45 minute mark with this wonderfully powerful sequence where um arlo and spot are camping out for night arlo's trying to explain to spot you know, about the concept of family to get back and explains it with you know stick by using sticks and drawing circles on the sand which spot seems receptive to and then reveals that he has more in common with Arlo than previously, like, than, it, than he might have thought. Again, purely just through, like, no sounds or dialogue, anything like that, just through action. And boys, and have you seen, I mean, you've, I'm assuming you've both seen How to, the first How to Train a Dragon, right? Oh, yeah. 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 Like, the best scene in the first How to Train a Dragon is the montage where, it's the workless montage where Hiccup and Toothless are, like starting to bond like as their relationships coming together whereas it's told wordlessly as the music swells but through the animation and it's wonderful and brilliant that's basically like that's that's basically the inspiration for a lot of how the um relationships work in this movie like it borrows that from how to train dragon it but i mean it also borrows elements from ice age and the land before time and that as well but it all it executes it in this through sort of through the Pixar way, but also again through this insistence of being more of a drama, of not needing to undercut every moment with a joke, not of trusting the audience that it can follow along with what's happening here. And because it's willing to push the boat out and try different things, even whilst it's still, you know, following a sort of rote, obvious story beats, is why the film is a genuine triumph. As well as the fact that I'm just way too easily emotionally manipulated when it comes to stories about you know, when it comes to dog allegories <laughs> as a dog owner. Mm. Um, and it's not top tier Pixar because again, those first 30 minutes are really rough. Um, I mean, I still cried when the dad died, but again, as I mentioned, I'm way too easily manipulated, <laughs> but it's a lot better than I thought it would be. It, it's like, it's not top tier Pixar, but it is nearly up there. If it weren't for the opening 30 minutes and the fact that the dialogue is still kind of iffy from time to time, but for the most part, it's a gorgeous movie that's willing to try new things and willing to take risks compared to the usual Pixar formula and to trust the audience. And that is a very positive, encouraging step um, for the future. And I really, really dug it. It's nice to see, like, it's nice to see an actual, an animated movie that's not solely trying to just make people laugh um, or, or laugh and then feel like instead, you know, instead hit, focus more directly on the heart and try to be different instead. Just quickly, you said it was a, a kind of simpler film than perhaps what Pixar have done mm. previously. Obviously Pixar films are primarily targeted at children but we all know how much fantastic reputation they have and how much adults enjoy them as well but do you think this one, if it was simpler, was perhaps aimed at slightly younger children than what 
tends to be. Because that would be a bit weird if it was and then wasn't funny. As, I was going to say, not with the execution. I mean, it is funny. Like, there are some jokes here and right there, but there's a lot less than before. Like, um, Inside, like, I'm assuming you've all seen Inside Out. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, um, even when that movie is, like, incredibly, like, serious and sad um, and heading for your heart, it's still primarily a comedy. Like, it's most of its runtime, even while it's grappling with these themes of identity identity and family and the need and the and feeling the need to keep up appearances even when things aren't okay like it's still aiming to do it through a, a humorous bent um but the good dinosaur instead is is less insistent on having to force those things through jokes i was in a screening full of kids and most and the, the kids were the usual kids you know like they were relatively restless and a lot of them were crying a lot because <laughs> again but yeah um i don't know I don't, I, I don't know. Okay, I feel like it is aimed at um, an older audience, hence a PG. There's even a bit where Spot just straight up bites the head off of a dung beetle, like like on like on screen. It's again, it's aimed at a slightly older, or at the very least, it trusts the audience more. It might be its downfall because it's yeah. not doing too well, is it? No, no, no. It's it's doing fine because in fact, again, the Hunger Games is out. And it's opened over Thanksgiving weekend with Peanuts movie still running strong and all that. And that. It's doing, it's actually doing quite fine. Also, um, Pixar films I don't think are primarily aimed at children, um, and I, I take issue with that fact. Like again, although I, again I do think it's nice to hear what kids think of these movies and that here, but they're not primarily aimed at children. And a film like this is especially so? not primarily aimed at kids. Mm. Well, with the exception of Cars, maybe I'd say. Um, like ki- like kids are part of the audience there, but it's, that's why Disney that's why Disney and, P- and Pixar are like always worried because they're not aiming solely at kids. Kids might enjoy them and they're put through like a kid filter, but it's not aimed specifically at kids. I suppose if you if you want to look at it a certain way, they they are aimed at the parents because they the parents are going to want to take the kid. The parents have got to take these kids to see the film. They're mm. not the kids aren't old enough to go and see a film by themselves. They're not they're yeah. not either. They're not old enough. You know the parents aren't going to say right. You can go off and go to the cinema on your own. So the, the parents have got to wait. The parents are going to take them to the film. So you've got to make a film that the parents are going to enjoy or else they're not going to bother. Then well, the parents are the one with the money. Mm. So, so in a cynical way, you have to market it to the parents. You have to make it enjoyable for parents as is for kids because these films are around an hour and a half, perhaps even two hours long. A parent isn't going to want to take the kid to the cinema and be bored for two hours because they can't get their phone out, they can't get their tablet out, they can't wander uh-huh. off, they've got to sit there and watch it. Next up for, uh, for us to review is Black Mass, the new film starring Johnny Depp, uh, based on uh, real-life gang leader from America, James Whitey Bulger. Um, both me and Callum have seen this one. Callum, what did you think? I, don't, I think... Our opinions, from what I've heard you say about this before recording, I think our opinions <laughs> are similar, although you probably disliked it more than I did. It's a shame this is a video podcast, because right? you just see me shrugging my shoulders. That is my <laughs> I saw this exactly two weeks ago now, and I cannot tell you a single thing about it. See, I, I, I can't. I, 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 I can't. I can't. Like normal, normally, I like normally I watch a film and it sticks with me for ages. Like I can tell you tons of things. I can offer you a review about this, but on Black Mass, I can give you absolutely nothing. It is. It's a film, but it, it's it's failed Oscar bait. Like it, it's the usual failed Oscar bait. The kind of movie, the movie that like the movie that has nothing to say about its subject because it does. It has nothing to interesting to say about James Whitey Bulger, what he did, or anything like that, other than just kind of. He was a guy who did things, I guess. And yeah, Johnny Depp's 
good in it. Better than he's been in ages. Any, anything recently. I mean, if well, you look considering, his, considering when, what Johnny Depp's been in, uh, and yeah, been in his performances in recently, that's really look, not saying much. If you look through his last few films, I, I know, I watched years, them. Yeah, you've got, <laughs> you've, got, you've got Mordecai, Into the Woods, um, Transcendence, Lone Ranger, Dark Shadows. Actually, he was fine in Into the Woods, but okay. Yeah, but it was in terms of the actual film overall, it wasn't the the greatest film. Was, I, I would offend Into the Woods further, but let's move on. Um, <laughs> but no, I kind of agree. With you. I think I enjoyed it more than you. It's certainly, a, for me, a, a reasonable way of passing a couple of hours or so. But as it's based on a true story and it's based on a real person, a film like that really should make you think, wow, I want to go and read up more or learn more about this yeah. person or these events. And this film didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, pro- the problem with it is the problem that has happened with so many like biopics and Oscar Bain out there that I've seen over the last like several years. And I'm getting really sick and tired of trying out the same thing. It's just, it has nothing to say beyond this was a thing that happened. And that's not good enough for a movie. You need to give me a reason as to why I'm watching this movie, as to why I'm watching these people. You need to give me some sort of insight. You need to give me some sort of point you're trying to make, as long as that, although that point is, look at these men doing their men things in their masculine ways, I'm just going to tell you to fuck off because I'm already sick of, because I'm now really sick of stories about that. But, like, again, like, Black Mass has nothing to say just beyond these are events that happened. Like, the film even basically gives you like like just basically gives me perfect fire to aim back at it, which is at the end when um like when the interviewer just says of a kind of like what 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 would you describe um James Wiley Bulger? And the guy just goes, strictly criminal. And that's the entire insight it has to say on Bulger in this movie. It's just he was a criminal. I'm like, yeah, no shit movie. It's, no shit. It's, it's like, I mean like there's, and it and it's got a lot of it's got like a, a very talented cast of like uh, like of not, like nine hundred recognizable who's who faces out there, and they're given nothing to do. And the film does nothing except be a bore, except be a list of events of this happened and a Boston gangster movie. It's the, it's the only no, of... the only notable thing I have, I could say about it is uh, is Adam Scott's pencil mustache, which is fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But it's it's kind of the people who made this film, the people who wrote the script commissioned it, directed it, produced it, obviously think this is an interesting part of history or an interesting person to make a film about. They don't make an interesting film about them. Yeah. But, they, like but there's a reason for making it. They think, wow, this guy's interesting. He's done, you know, as a gang leader, he's done this, that, and the other. He was involved with the FBI. It was, a, it was you know, he was second on the FBI's most wanted list behind Bin Laden at one point. That that's interesting. Let's make a film about it. But they don't engage you in the film, so you don't. Like I said earlier, biopic or a historical film based on true events should make you want to go and look up more about that event or that person. And this doesn't. Yeah, um, no, it doesn't. Also, it, it, it just all, it just sounds yeah. as these are a bunch of things that happen. And you've also got his brother played by Benedict Cumberbatch, who's in the U.S. Senate. Some you know some. Senator, who's not involved in the illegal activity at all, he's probably aware that his brother's doing it, but he's he's completely separate to it. It's a completely pointless subplot, and I suppose it is interesting the fact you've got this big time gang leader whose brother is in the Senate. It's a interesting, in some ways, you know, you think, oh, you wish one brother's a gang leader, you wouldn't expect the other brothers to be doing that kind of job, but it's yeah. completely pointless. It doesn't offer anything to the film. It's, it's, just... it's, it's, it's the same problem that Legend had. Like, I was about to make the same. Yeah, it's about yeah. that thing of having like 900, of clearly being a film that's been cut down 
like majorly mm. to get you down to two hours. But at the same time, still feels like it's not long enough because it has all these like 900 dead subplots that go nowhere and can't decide what it actually wants to do. So it just becomes a film about nothing. I also like I've also just been looking up um, the screenwriter here, Jez Butterworth on Wikipedia. It turns out he also wrote the um, James. Well, he co-wrote the James Brown biopic Get On Up from last year as well, which also have the similar problem of having nothing to say about its subject beyond this was a guy that existed. Um, yeah. Although Gown Up also had the also managed to nearly avoid that problem by the fact that a it was basically a straightforward walk hard, which meant them had many unintentional laughs, and the second being that Chadwick Boseman had a thunderously performance, whereas Black Mask just has a good Johnny Depp performance. Yeah. Have you seen Crazy Heart? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, I haven't seen that. I know that it had a really um sort of a lot of praise when it came out it, it seemed to be received quite well but that was also just a biopic i wondered if it was if it suffered from the same problem of not having much to say about its subject or whether it was actually genuinely good because i liked out of the furnace by scott cooper mm. that you know i thought that was really good it wasn't that an exceptional film but it was it was hinged on the performances really christian bell was just superb throughout the furnace and the story kind of engaged me but it didn't it didn't feel like it had a lot to say either, but I still mm. really liked it. I don't know. I don't know. Brooker wrote our review uh, for Black Mass when he went to the preview in October. I haven't seen it myself yet, but he seemed to love it. He seemed to be very impressed with it. I think he even called it the best crime film this year. <laughs> mm. Actually, I'm trying to think of other crime films that came out this year. And also, it's been a miserable year for movies now I think about it. Maybe he's right, but only on a technicality. <laughs> Uh, next up then is uh, Carol, which uh, Callum Callum's seen every new release this week. So, um, but he's I the only see one all the new releases. Yes, <laughs> but he's the, he's the only one who's seen Carol. Owen, Owen, Carol saw, uh, well, out Owen saw Carol this week. It was a different Carol. Uh, yeah, uh, yes. yeah, very good. Oh, yeah, hey. <laughs> yeah. Also, Carol doesn't seem to be out everywhere anyway, does it? Uh, I no. don't think it was on at my local Cineplex. Definitely wasn't in on in Didcut. Anyway, yeah. no, I, like, it was only yeah. in my cinema. Like I was completely amazed it actually turned up at my cinema. To be honest, so. yeah. Anyways, Carol, which is the new film from director Todd Haynes, um, who's responsible for Sa- uh, Safe, Far from Heaven, I'm Not There, uh, lots of you know big weird movies, um, and here he is directing a relatively straightforward romantic drama um, based on the novel The Price of Salt by Patricia Highsmith. Um, which is later renamed Carol, and stars Kate Blanchett as Carol Ed and Rooney Mara as Therese Bellavette, who are two women in the 1950s who meet and fall in love. Sorry to spoil the surprise there. <laughs> um, no, like, Carol Ed is the older of the two. She's in the midst of a very, very, very messy divorce from her absolute bastard of a husband, um, Harge, played by Carl Chandler. She loves her daughter, like, she has a daughter who she loves, Vindy, who she loves dearly, like, dearly, dearly loves her, and has has had dalliances in the past with having sex, with with lesbianism, or not so much dances, more fact that she's basically bisexual, but the film doesn't, you know, state explicitly, but there you Mm -hmm. go. So she, like, she's the older, she's more experienced, she's the wiser of the two. Therese is basically box fresh, like, like I read. So like, she's she's twenty, she's barely twenty. She's discovering her sexuality for the first time. She she has a boyfriend. This film starts. Richard, played by Jake Lacey, she's working in a department store, but she wants to become a photographer. 
And near enough Christmas in 1950s New York, um, the two first meet each other at that department store when Carol comes in trying to buy a present for her daughter and begin a long, uh, slow, and utterly beautiful courtship of one another and showing how their relationship grows and what happens when the fact that this is 1950s America and their various baggage come home and tra- and like ends up affecting the relationship. I, I really don't know how to transition here <laughs> like, <laughs> for a plot, plot summary to anything else, primarily because this is basically perfect. Really? Perfect? That's a bold claim. As, as, far, as far as I can tell right now from sitting here, there is basically not one single thing about this movie that is anything less than great or undercooked or anything. It's, pra- it's basically perfect. You know when you're watching a film and you're engaged and you're, like, you're, engaged and you're interested and you're, re- and you're enjoying it, but you're not sure that you're hooked? Like, mm-hmm. like you watch it and you start everything and you're not sure you're hooked. But then one, spe- but then one small like scene or thing or something, not a big moment there, but like one small scene or thing happens, and you suddenly realise that you have been hooked this entire time and you are in for the long haul and nothing that film does now is going to break that spell from you at all. Like you are, you are in and you love this movie to death. Like you know, you know, you know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, that, ha- that's me with Carol. Uh, like I spent like the first forty-five minutes engaged, interested, and that there, but I didn't think I was hooked. But then there's a scene where Carol and Therese are hanging out at, um, I believe it's Therese's, um, on, at Christmas, and Therese has bought Carol um, a vinyl of Billie Holiday's "Easy Living" for like as a gift for Christmas. But and they're currently listening to it on vinyl whilst you know hanging out and slowly growing closer. And then the song finishes, and Carol just says with this genuine like quietly restrained joy like pure joy in her voice um just again like to play it again and then Therese goes over and puts it back on and it's like that specific moment that i realized i was completely hooked by this movie and i desperately wanted to see these two end happily together and that absolutely nothing the film was going to do was going to break that spell for me and it only got better and better and better from there because like, i realized um how I might come off on Twitter or on screen one or on here, but I might look like, like a cynical bastard. <laughs> like, not, like you know, I've got a miserable. Surely thing. not, Callum. Surely not. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I'm on the internet. It's basically a prerequisite, right? <laughs> but no, like, but genuinely I am actually, the dirty little secret is that at heart, I am a, I am a hopeless old fashioned romantic. Like I love my, I love my ridiculous sappy romance stories. You know, of boy meets girl, girl meets boy, girl meets girl, boy meets boy. You know, of love at, you know, of like, you know, that kind of love at first sight of courtships of sweet, you know, of like, uh, like I've seen two people grow to get, like, slowly realize over time how much they mean to each other and grow to love each other, and it's adorable and wonderful. Like I am a sucker for that kind of, you know, the big kiss, the moment like the the looking all is lost moment the point where the film ends and everything's gonna be okay like i am a sucker for all that stuff i feel like it, like you should have seen like you people should have seen me when i was watching parks and recreation like as i'm going through parks and recreation <laughs> and the april and andy courtship there were like my my face and does does things of pure joy that you could probably meme to death for days um the problem is a lot of romance films i've seen recently aren't romantic <laughs> To, mm. like to put it that way oh, any, oh, most romantic or oh, just romances in films in general just mostly aren't romantic nowadays you know, like they're basically undercooked filler you know because like a reward to give a guy or then you have films like 50 shades of gray which are less romances and more mo- stories of psychological abuse 
Well, you've got like Riddick, which, which is actually what, which is actually what the film's about as well. Like the film basically makes that plain text, but that's something. Okay, oh yeah, yeah, again, your Riddick thing as well. Um, where where like, he turns a gay yeah, woman turns a lesbian, straight. Yeah. like straight, which yeah. is certainly something Bradley Cooper did for what, like, did to Uma Thurman and burnt by the way, in case you're <laughs> to avoid burnt. But like, like, or you've got uh, so it's like Far from the Madding Crowd, which is like, which is just a load of really horrible people being terrible to each other as a woman, like, and stripping a woman of her independence, even as she runs around saying like I'm an independent woman, and then doesn't actually do anything to justify that independence. Um, I mean, far be it for me to tell people what like I'm not going to judge people if they find this stuff romantic. That's fine. That's their prerogative. Their like they can do that if they want to. I'm not going to judge them for that. Uh, but I don't find it romantic. But Carol. Is I really can't believe I'm about to like, and I come in going to use this word from the actual posters itself here. I really do find it heart-stoppingly romantic. It is an uh, like their courtship is a beautiful, wonderful, pure thing of pure like joy, because there's not a single ounce of cynicism in the entire movie of Rotness. It all feels like it moves at a pace that feels natural, of watching these two slowly come together, slowly realizing. Uh, like there's clearly like a spark from the first time they like they catch eyes each other across the room in a like in a department store, but they click. But it's the slow move there as they both slowly start to realize how much they grow to care for each other, and how and what and whether they feel like it's right to keep pushing forward and whether like and whether and how things affect them out there. It's just this beautiful, sweet, honest thing of these. Like it's like Todd Haynes is a director that gets accused a lot for being cold. Like I've heard, like, like cold and distant, which is something you can level at him. Like in fairness, like he purposely try, like like I'm not there is a film um, that is basically designed to be as purposely like weird and confusing as possible. Um, but here, that sort of, that actually works because like it's a film that's shot with some distance, but still has a focus on intimacy. Which sound which sounds weird. Bear with me. Let me explain. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, it's like, it, like it's a film that has a lot of like where touch and dialogue are out there. Like where intimacy is very important. But these are also two characters who are existing in a time where homosexuality is considered like is considered wrong at best, a psychological defect that you should be sent to a shrink to to cure at worst. How you could even say that is for most places today as well, mm-hmm. even with the strides we've had forward. But um, so there's always this sense of like of having to be restrained, of having to like of these two characters having to speak in like you know, like like in distancing of trying of being of awkwardness of trying to realize like of trying to figure out how far is too far like how direct is too direct but you know essentially like loving each other but having to try and hide that in the most like adorable ways possible so then eventually like when characters do end up touching you know whether it's like a a, a hand clasp or a touch on the shoulder or bit or like when um carol at one point just says straight up do you want to come over to my house this weekend i I would like if you came over to my house this weekend like these are big like moments with genuine weight because it's this kind of directness of this moment of intimacy. Where, and because Haynes has this, again, shoots with this distance, instead of doing like the Tom Hooper thing where he just focuses on like 
one body part and pulls the focus out purposely out of place to draw attention to it and it looks terrible and stupid and I fucking hate Tom Hooper. Like, there's an actual, again, there's a wait anytime these two do connect or if they come close to touching. Like, there's a bit where they're testing out perfume and they're sniffing each other's necks and you can cut the sexual tension with a knife. Um, so then when they do start connecting and they do push forward and the sex scene does come because there is a sex scene, steady on put. I know that some... I know there'll be some terrible perverted people's minds that will just light up about idea. Um, it's like when it does come, it's the most beautiful thing possible because of, they've put in the time and the effort to show how these two are naturally coming together, how they've, how they're working through their urges and their desires to rush forward, but not being sure. So then when it does come for this wonderful moment of pure joy and release that I am not kidding here. I am not exaggerating. I actually sat there in the cinema as it happened and I cried tears of joy because it was beautiful it was ab- like it's a such a beautiful romantic moment and then once i started crying i basically didn't stop because after that the film proceeds to put you through the emotional ringer um without ever getting miserable as well a lot like um stories about uh non-heterosexual romances are often you know play for tragedy like i i think it's fine like like it's played in that kind of sense of you know, like it's building up to some sort of tragic ending, you know, like like Brokeback Mountain, for example. You know, the idea of like society is going to shun these people down. You just need to wait for the works, but uh, for waterworks. But even in its saddest moments, Carol never actually devolves into the realm of misery. It's always got this optimistic heart to it. It's always got this pure romantic heart. This old, this somewhat old-fashioned sense that things will actually turn out okay in the end, and. That and that is such a wonderful change to see, and it works so well. And I mean, obviously, and the film, I mean, like Todd Haynes' direction is superb. The production design looks amazing, like this film looks incredible. But the film would not work without Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara putting in two of the absolute best performances of the entire year. Um, Blanchett's been getting all the you know, the big praise. Um, you know, like she she gets the showier role basically. You know, like she gets you know she's the old elder statesman there. She gets the bigger subplots, you know, like with her daughter and stuff like that. Uh, but Mara is actually the lightning rod that holds the film together because again, she's having to communicate. She's having to navigate her character's naivete and her sexual awakening in these incredibly, like in these in these really subtle and restrained ways through like through a certain ways like she carries herself or holds a certain facial expression and she does so so much great outstanding work here and that and the film's script as well like the dialogue every scene has this sort of like rhythm to it again the dialogue of people you know avoiding certain ways like like of trying of finding certain ways to phrase certain things and to dance around issues and up there but it's there's very there's comparatively a little dialogue but it's the way that it's delivered, like the way people say words, the speed, the rhythm, the enunciation, like that you can just tell as it drags out the tension, the awkwardness in a way that still feels refined and classy, like in the realm of the period drama. And it's the kind of film where eventually it then hit that near the end of film. All it takes is three words, three little words, but in any other film would put, would have been like a big fist pumping. Yes. Moment of fabulous but that was basically ended up being like an actual full-on knife to the gut that I started choking up in ridiculously. It is an outstanding movie. Like, I like I went, like, obviously, Carol has been praised to high heaven by basically every single film critic alive and has been hyped to death by everybody, <laughs> um, you know, at festivals by film critics about that. 
to such extent that I, even though I was excited for it, I went into it thinking this cannot be that good. Like, like it can't be. Like no, like any, like any film that's built up to be the greatest thing, you know, like since sliced bread or whatever, that can't be as, like as good as it is. Like I have the same thoughts about Mad. Like I have the same feelings about Mad Max Fury Road before I went in and saw it. Like, like earlier in the year, I thought there's no way that it can be this good, and it was. And Cavill really is that good. Like for once, you can actually believe the hype and the critical dogpiling in a good way that's gone to it here. This is outstanding. Okay. Uh, high praise indeed for Carol there. On to our final film, and let's get through this one pretty quickly. That's Bridge of Spies, directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Hanks. You two have seen that. From the looks of the trailer to me, it looks like Spielberg and Hanks buy the books. Is that right? Mm, ish, yeah. I mean, Tom Hanks doesn't cry. That's a first, I think. He gets a little bit teary in his eyes at one point, but there's no full-on blubbing. So um, so it's slightly different, at least, in that regard. It's actually scripted by the Coen brothers as well. Um, Not exactly, actually. Apparently, they only did a minor rewrite. So, is that right? Yeah, apparently it's Their more... names match- all over it. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it's, apparently it's more Matt Charm than the guy, like the other guy. Yeah. Then they just did a minor rewrite. Although you can still feel their voice in there from time to time. Definitely well. can, yeah. yeah. Particularly in some of the um, lighter moments. Then, yeah. then that's why I thought, okay, so that's why they're all over it, because it's basically their script. Yeah. But I guess if that's not the case, then I feel lied to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you sold on the false pretenses. Exactly, yeah. But it also, I mean, if it, if it sort of sounds a lot like a Coen Brothers film at times, it looks a lot like a Spielberg film all the way through. It's got his trademarks all over it. The, the sort of soft lighting that's used all the time or um some of the more sentimental moments and the the sort of cello music over the top of it it just it's spielberg through and through Mm. i kind of feel like it didn't it was like two films stuck together for me i think there was two stories being told but i think mostly it it was an entertaining enjoyable it's not really a thriller. I don't know what you'd call it, really. It's just drama. a drama, isn't it? Just straight-up drama, I yeah. guess. Yeah. I like Mark Rylance in it. I thought he was good. I know he's got a lot of uh, sort of acclaim lately for, for his performances that he's put into things. Excusing the gunman, which wasn't a good performance or a good film. Oh, yeah, he was in that. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I keep forgetting anybody else was in there other than just Sean Penn and Sean Penn's massive ego. Sean Penn's ego and uh, no shirts for Sean Penn either. He didn't wear any shirts in that film. <laughs> who, needs, who needs shirts when you have an ego? Yeah, true. Um, that's why I'm topless right now. Uh, but he, <laughs> yeah, but it was good for Mark Rylance. I, I didn't quite get Wolf Hall. I know how that makes me sound. Probably thicker than I already sound on every single episode anyway. But I didn't really get on with Wolf Hall too much. I tried. But in this, is the first time I've watched it, uh, one of his performances and gone, okay, yeah, I get it. I see why people like him so much now. But yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a, 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 not a really good film. It was good. It was just... Basically, if you, if you have any affinity towards any Steven Spielberg films, you'll probably like it a little bit. If you don't, it's probably not going to be for you because it is just a typical drama. Did you have a difference of opinion opinion there, Callum? Or well, of course I did, Owen. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually think it's a masterwork. A masterwork. Uh, I, I, really? I, I do. I think I think it's Spielberg's best film since Munich. 
Um, and I say this, A, as somebody who really likes Munich, I will hear no shit talked about Munich, mm-hmm. thank kindly. And two, as somebody who really, really, who loves the Tintin movie and really like Lincoln. See, for, for one, it's um, like, it's two hours and 20 minutes long, and it felt like pretty much no time at all for me, which is an incredible feat, because by this That's point, because yeah. for me, two hour movies now are um, like, are just like, fucking marathons to me like i'm like i'm going to be an old man you <laughs> can't like two hour movies no <laughs> one for me you kids get off my damn lawn it's because uh, they're all two, over two hours though which is yeah annoying. most of them really don't need to be but no. um like, but like spielberg is somebody i feel like we take for granted nowadays mm-hmm. yeah you know, you're right because he's been around for so long and he's been so consistent for so long like yeah he makes a war horse every now and again but hey, everybody <laughs> makes a war horse every now and again if you let him long enough um like but he's getting to a point where it feels like we're just gonna take him for granted but like bridge of spies is kind of just proof of why he is still one of the best filmmakers working today and that's because like i find the films be this wonderfully optimistic and joyous look at um the power of fair justice which is kind of what links the two parts like i, I get what you say when it feels like two separate movies stitched together and like that but it's what links together is the idea of everybody stepping back looking at the bigger picture and not rushing to judgments based on biases and um public f- furor and hysteria um yeah that's yeah, true like- Oh, sorry, go on. I, like I was going to say it, it is true that it, it tries to do something like, but it feels a, it still feels a bit. Um, I don't know, not shallow. Shallow is too strong a word. Just too flimsy. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it, I, there wasn't I, a I, lot I, of depth there. There wasn't a lot of depth. I mean, the I, whole fact about the, the, the being spies and it's the Cold War and that's just toyed with kind of every so often. Like this, you don't get the the idea that there is a huge bigger picture. You just understand like, that there's three different sides who are playing off each other a little bit. I feel like, well, A, I feel like that's, um, kind of, I feel like, A, the shallowness is offset by the fact that it, um, the characters are so well developed, especially um, Mark Rylance, mm-hmm. um, like as uh, Rudolph Abel, um, who it would have been so easy, like, for films to just write, even if he wasn't like that. Like, even if he wasn't like in real life, I'm just right as kind of, yeah, same, I just like your Western capitalist weed. <laughs> American yeah. scum, and apparently all my communists come from France. But um, <laughs> uh, like, but is that? But also, I feel like that's kind of a point because, I, like, I think you'll notice as well. Like in for like Spielberg's one of Spielberg's things, of course, that sense of every life matters. Like, like, yeah, like that's that's one of the things that runs for his work. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, like, of how many lives are worth, you know, like how many lives are worth, um, yeah, paid back over Munich bombings. How many lives are worth such so, and it fo- because it focuses on the like on the few people involved in charge it kind of just shows the personal cost of um the cold war of how these are just people doing their jobs um as decided by their country in a war that as a history student here so i feel somewhat qualified to say this even if i'm probably wrong basically was just a series of like just basically two giant superpowers waving their dicks at each other for 30 years for no particular fucking reason so because it and because it focuses on that it looks at that and then essentially drops Tom Hanks in there as, like, essentially like a force of, like, pure good as to what happens when you don't succumb to hysteria and that, and still try and focus. And remember that every life does matter and that these people are important and that regardless of affiliations or country and stuff like that, that, everybody, that every person is still a person in the end. Instantly, a character that would have been ridiculous and completely unbelievable if it were played by anybody other than Tom Hanks. <laughs> yeah. Like, who instantly is the only guy like in the cast who has to like who goes big, which you know fits because yeah Tom Hanks. Everybody else goes 
um, like un- always goes to like a sort of underplay a subtle underplaying character turn, especially Mark Rylance, um, which works. Mm. Like because of that, again, you get this like again like a sense of looking at people and reminding us of like of the power of pure good. Like, like, of some semblance of optimism regarding these kinds of situations here. The idea of, um, again, of like quietly look, deconstructing the, like the tenets of the Cold War and all this stuff. But there, again, it, within the confines of a really tense, because um, it's like the um, almost of this movie is still genuinely tense, even though you know nothing bad can happen. Otherwise, the Cold War, otherwise World War Three would have started about, up yeah. there by now. Um, but it's again. Because, but because Spielberg is such a master at that kind of crowd-pleasing filmmaking, um, like he's able to extract these wonderful tensions while still looking at again the theme using the Cold War as the backdrop for tales about the power of fair justice, which is still relevant today as well. Um, like it might be framed through you know the tales of com- like uh, of communist spies at that time as well, but you could also use it as like an allegory for why you know, like for about especially black injustices in America right now. Um, yeah, you know, for way police treating black just if you'd like to, I'd like talking it like that, but that's just me. And again, I and as as basically as I was watching the film and loving it, and even when Spielberg does his usual overly sappy moments near the end, like mm-hmm. an ending that goes of on course. a little bit too yeah. long, gets so, so it's it's like he's earned it because he spent so like he spent the rest of the movie you know, like just essentially reaffirming why he is still one of the best filmmakers working today. Like how he can still just toss up wonderful crowd pleasing movies just like. Like, 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 it's no effort at all. When even when you know, there's clearly so many moving parts and so much effort put in there, um, especially when he's handed a, a script as good as this one. Mm. Um, again, but there are so many wonder. Again, I didn't even realize it was actually just a minor rewrite until I did some research before Screen One, like because it felt so Coen'sy at points, especially when um, yes, yeah, like especially when uh, Tom Hanks meets um, uh, Rudolph Abel's quote unquote family. <laughs> yeah, that was the point I was watching this, and that's I think that was the moment as well for me where I thought, yeah, this this really is a Cohen film, isn't it? Just with a Spielberg gloss on it. Yeah, but, uh... but no, I know I again I think this is actually one of the best films I've seen this year. Um, I love, um, and it's going to be a real, real damn shame when Spielberg stops making movies. It really is. Okay, um, well that is more or less all for this week's failed critics podcast. Just got the recommendations to go now. Uh, I'm going to go. Four, not a lot on telly this week, but if you go to Friday night on Film 4, uh, or Friday afternoon on Film 4 at 10 past 5, uh, it is the original Planet of the Apes. <laughs> Which is genuinely a really good film. Yeah. I know we, we're talking about spoilers at the start of the podcast in trailers and stuff, and yeah. everybody knows what the twist is in Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Doesn't matter. It's still a cracking film. Yeah. I hate every monkey I see from chimpanzees to chimpanzees. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I like the way they're going at the moment with the, the reboot of the franchise. I mean, God knows what that Mark Wahlberg one was all about. But um, <laughs> but the... more of the Planet of the Apes is next, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, I and... wait because Dawn was amazing. Yeah. Yeah, but I've, I've loved both of the the newer in um, Planet of the Apes films. They've been great. So, um, but go back to the original and see what that's all about. Uh, Owen? Okay, on iPlayer at the minute, BBC iPlayer, um, there is a documentary which I've shown as part of Storyville. And it's still available for 22 days, as at the time of this recording. There's, uh, it, it Basically, it's called Cartel Land. And it won at the Sundance Film Festival recently. It's described as a fearless expose 
of the Mexican drug war and the cartels that are around the, and, and, and the Americans on the other side of the border as well. But it also focuses on this small town where uh, a doctor there has started something called the Auto Defensors, who are a, a vigilante group who take on the cartel. In their tone, and it's it's an astonishing documentary. Some of the stuff there is, it is as brutal as you would expect because they have a little bit of. Uh, it doesn't get too graphic, but it shows you some of the stuff that this this cartel group called the Knights Templar are doing in Mexico: beheadings, shootings, torture, killing children, all that kind of thing. Um, so it's grim. It's a very hard watch at times, but it is astonishing. It's just. Uh, Wow, all all the way through was, yeah, yeah. You've got to watch it. I can't describe it too much because, uh, you know, to do so would to be to give away too much of it. You've just got to watch it and be astonished for yourself. Okay, and Callum, Magic Mike XXL is now on Blu-ray. Go buy Magic Mike <laughs> XXL on Blu-ray. It is one of the best films of the year. Gen- gen- genuinely, is one of the best films of the year. It's a wonderful, beautiful, ch- quietly revelatory little movie. Also, if you live in Hull, on the 22nd of December, because I have no idea if I'm going to be back on this podcast before the end of the year, on the 22nd of December, the Hull Independent Cinema Project is showing 45 years at the Hull Truck Theatre. And 45 years is outstanding, and you should go pay money to go watch that, seriously. I got, I got to see it on big screen, and I felt so privileged to be able to do, it, to do so. So, do that. Okay, that is now all, this, all for this week's Fail Critics podcast. Uh, next week... I think I mean, it looks like it's um, possibly the new uh, Victor Frankenstein film starring Daniel Radcliffe and James McAvoy. And maybe if anyone can be bothered to go and see it, <laughs> see them, Krampus and The Night Before. Krampus just looks... I don't know what to expect from that at all. Krampus is Baba Guy to Trick or Treat, which apparently was good. Trick so. or Treat was... I think it's a little bit overrated. Mm. Nice idea. But yeah, so I don't know what to expect from this because part of it just a fucking weird Santa Christmas evil demon thing. It's also got Adam Scott in it, which is weird. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what I'll, what that'll be like. But uh, I'll maybe we'll see. maybe we'll find out next week. Yeah. In the meantime, I have stuff to plug because I'm on Pick a Flick this week, and I was on the pilot episode of the new Bottle episode podcast which you should all listen to and check out their website because it's fantastic and uh, basically I talk about some of my favorite tv shows from now to when I was a kid and then we try to come up with a sort of concept for a new tv show that links those themes together it was a really interesting idea I really sort of recommend people give uh, Matt Latham's website the bottle episode um, uh, a a quick look-see okay Uh, yes so thank you very much for listening and join us again next week for more film related nonsense the failed critics podcast is presented by steve norman and owen hughes created by james diamond with original music provided by kevin mcleod of incompetech.com remixed by james yule of jamesyule.com you can find us at failedcritics.com on Twitter at Failed Critics and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Failed Critics. Thanks for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.